Hi guys, welcome back to Flat Water, Flat Earth. So I found something incredible that I had to share with you. So I was reading through the travels of Marco Polo, the Venetian, the translation of Marsden revised with a selection of his notes, edited by Thomas Wright Esquire, etc., etc. And I found this incredible description, just a great story, that as soon as I saw this story, I realized I had to share it. There's a lot of descriptions of the Tartars and the Tartarians here. In fact, it's a really good historical book for a first source, first-hand source, confirmation of certain kings who lived in certain actions that happened and, and dates. People have been talking about resets. There are no resets. There is the gospel, and there have been, there's been a great flood, and also the days of Peleg and when the continents were moved and other things that have happened but it doesn't mean that uh, that there was a reset and the things that people say well there's these formations on top of things well that's because there was a mud layer that was disturbed throughout the entire earth everything was mixed up the water actually ascended to the height of the top of the dome it almost overflowed the dome and scared the angels up there that it was going to overflow. So during that time, the earth was, for at least six months to even longer, during that time, the earth was inundated with mud and earthquakes and shaking and, and all kinds of events, which would account for those ancient structures being buried under and looking like they're under glass and other sediments and concretions. It doesn't mean that there was a plasma firestorm. This is proven, I can prove this, that we're not in the thousand-year reign of Jesus because when that happens, when he returns, he's going to roll up the sky. Everything will be melted with a fervent heat and destroyed completely. And has that happened? Or has everything been destroyed completely? No. So that hasn't happened yet. The Travels of Marco Polo. So in this portion, we're on page 41. Baldak captured by the Tartars, where he's describing the Saracens and the Ismailis, or Muslims, and describing different parts of their kingdoms. So you'll get the picture as I begin to read here. So chapter 7 of the great city of Baldak, or Bagadet, anciently called Babylon, of the navigation from thence to Balsara, situated in what is termed the Sea of India, but properly the Persian Gulf, and of the various sciences studied in that city. Baldak is a large city, heretofore the residence of the caliph or pontiff of all the Saracens, as the pope is of all the Christians. A great river flows through the midst of it, by means of which the merchants transport their goods to and from the Sea of India, the distance being computed at seventeen days' navigation, in consequence of the windings of its course. Those who undertake the voyage after leaving the river touch at a place named Kisi from whence they proceed to sea. But previously to their reaching this anchorage, they pass a city named Balsara. The city of Baghdad was built by Abu Jafar al-Mansur, second caliph of the Abbasite dynasty, about the year 765, and continued to be the residence of his successors until the death of the last caliph of that race in the year 1258, when it fell under the dominion of the Mughals. This river is the Tigris, named Dijle by the Arabs, which falls into the Euphrates. When their united streams acquire the appellation of Shat el-Arab and discharge themselves into the Persian Gulf. 
The modern city of Baghdad stands on the eastern bank and is connected with the suburb on the western side of the river by a bridge of boats. But on that side there are also found the ruins of buildings that belong to the ancient city or seat of the caliphs, and our author is therefore correct in describing it as divided by the river in his time. Abul Fada speaks of it as occupying both banks of the Tigris. Kisi or Chisi, in the Italian orthography, is a small island on the eastern side of the Gulf of Persia, named Kis or Kais, to which the trade of Siraf, a port on the neighboring continent, much celebrated by eastern geographers, was transferred. In consequence, as it may be presumed, of wars in that quarter, and of injuries sustained by the merchants. The exact situation of the latter is not now pointed out by any remains. Balsara, more commonly written Balsora, but properly Basra, is a city of great commercial importance, situated on the southwest side of the Shat al-Arab, about halfway between the point where the Euphrates and Tigris unite their streams, and the Persian Gulf. It lies, consequently, in the way, as our author remarks, of those who navigate from Baghdad to the island of Kis. So I'm just reading that to give you some context of where we are, the time frame, etc. Okay, now, carrying on from the last sentence there it was saying those who undertake the voyage after leaving the river touch at a place named kisi from whence they proceed to sea but previously to their reaching this anchorage they pass a city named balsara or basra in the vicinity of which are groves of palm trees producing the best dates in the world in baldak there is a manufacture of silks wrought with gold and also of damasks as well as of velvets ornamented with the figures of birds and beasts Almost all the pearls brought to Europe from India have undergone the process of boring at this place. The Mohammedan law is here regularly studied, as are also magic, physics, astronomy, geomancy, and physiognomy. It is the noblest and most extensive city to be found in this part of the world. Chapter 8. Concerning the Capture and Death of the Caliph of Baldak The above-mentioned Caliph, who is understood to have amassed greater treasures than had ever been possessed by any other sovereign, perished miserably under the following circumstances. At the period when the Tartar princes began to extend their dominion, there were amongst them four brothers, of whom the eldest, named Mangu, reigned in the royal seat of the family. Having subdued the country of Cathay and other districts in that quarter, they were not satisfied, but coveting further territory, they conceived the idea of universal empire, and proposed that they should divide the world amongst them. With this object in view, it was agreed that one of them should proceed to the east, that another should make conquests in the south, and that the other two should direct their operations against the remaining quarters. The southern portion fell to the lot of Ulau, who assembled a vast army, and having subdued the provinces through which his route lay, proceeded in the year 1255 to the attack of this city of Baldak. Being aware, however, of its great strength and the prodigious number of its inhabitants, he trusted rather to stratagem than to force for its reduction, and in order to deceive the enemy with regard to the number of his troops, which consisted of a hundred thousand horses, besides foot soldiers. He posted one division of his army on the one side, another division on the other side of the approach to the city, in such a manner as to be concealed by a wood, and placing himself at the head of the third, advanced boldly to within a short distance of the gate. The caliph made light of a force apparently so inconsiderable, and confident in the efficacy of the usual Mohammedan ejection, thought of nothing less than its entire destruction, and for that purpose marched out of the city with his guards. But as soon as Yulao perceived his approach, he feigned to retreat before him, until by this means he had drawn him beyond the wood where the other divisions were posted. By the closing of these from both sides, the army of the caliph was surrounded and broken, himself was made prisoner, and the city surrendered to the conqueror. Upon entering it, Yulao discovered, to his great astonishment, 
a tower filled with gold. He called the caliph before him, and after reproaching him with his avarice that prevented him from employing his treasures in the formation of an army for the defense of his capital against the powerful invasion with which it had been long threatened, gave orders for his being shut up in this same tower, without sustenance, and there, in the midst of his wealth, he soon finished a miserable existence. I judge that our Lord Jesus Christ herein thought proper to avenge the wrongs of his faithful Christians, so abhorred by this caliph. From the time of his accession in 1225, his daily thoughts were employed on the means of converting to his religion those who resided within his dominion, or upon their refusal, informing pretenses for putting them to death. Consulting with his learned men for this purpose, they discovered a passage in the gospel where it said, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, upon prayer to that effect addressed to the divine majesty. And being rejoiced at the discovery, persuaded as he was, that the thing was utterly impossible, he gave orders for assembling all the Nestorian and Jacobite Christians who dwelt in Baghdad, and who were very numerous. To these the question was propounded whether they believed all that is asserted in the text of their gospel to be true or not. They made answer that it was true. Then, said the caliph, if it be true, let us see which of you will give the proof of his faith. For certainly if there is not to be found one amongst you who possesses even so small a portion of faith in his Lord as to be equal to a grain of mustard, I shall be justified in regarding you from henceforth as a wicked, reprobate, and faithless people. I allow you, therefore, ten days before the expiration of which you must either, through the power of him whom you worship, remove the mountain now before you, or embrace the law of our prophet, in either of which cases you will be safe, but otherwise you must all expect to suffer the most cruel deaths. The Christians, acquainted as they were with his merciless disposition, as well as his eagerness to despoil them of their property, upon hearing these words, trembled for their lives. But nevertheless, having confidence in their Redeemer, that he would deliver them from their peril, they held an assembly and deliberated on the course they ought to take. None other presented itself than that of imploring the divine being to grant them the aid of his mercy. To obtain this, every individual, great and small, prostrated himself night and day upon the earth, shedding tears profusely and attending to no other occupation than that of prayer to the Lord. When they had thus persevered during eight days, a divine revelation came at length, in a dream, to a bishop of exemplary life, directing him to proceed in search of a certain shoemaker whose name is not known, having only one eye, whom he should summon to the mountain as a person capable of effecting its removal through the divine grace. Having found the shoemaker and made him acquainted with the revelation, he replied that he did not feel himself worthy of the undertaking his merits not being such as to entitle him to the reward of such abundant grace. Importuned, however, by the poor terrified Christians, he at length assented. It should be understood that he was a man of strict morals and pious conversation, having his mind pure and faithful to his God, regularly attending the celebration of the Mass and other divine offices, fervent in works of charity and rigid in the observance of fasts. It once happened to him that a handsome young woman who came to his shop in order to be fitted with a pair of slippers in presenting her foot, accidentally exposed a part of her leg, the beauty of which excited in him a momentary concupiscence. But recollecting himself, he presently dismissed her, and calling to mind the words of the gospel where it is said, If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. He immediately, with an instrument of his trade, scooped out his right eye, evincing by that act, beyond all doubt, 
the excellence of his faith. The appointed day being arrived, divine service was performed at an early hour, and a solemn procession was made to the plain where the mountain stood, the holy cross being borne in front. The caliph, likewise, in the conviction of its proving a vain ceremony on the part of the Christians, chose to be present, accompanied by a number of his guards, for the purpose of destroying them in the event of failure. Here the pious artisan, kneeling before the cross and lifting up his hands to heaven, humbly besought his creator that he would compassionately look down upon earth, and for the glory and excellence of his name, as well as for the support and confirmation of the Christian faith, would lend assistance to his people in the accomplishment of the task imposed upon them, and thus manifest his power to the revilers of his law. Having concluded his prayer, he cried with a loud voice, In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, I command thee, O mountain, to remove thyself. Upon these words being uttered, the mountain moved, and the earth at the same time trembled in a wonderful and alarming manner. The caliph and all those by whom he was surrounded were struck with terror and remained in a state of stupefaction. Many of the latter became Christians, and even the caliph secretly embraced Christianity, always wearing a cross concealed under his garment, which after his death was found upon him. And on this account it was that they did not entomb him in the shrine of his predecessors. In commemoration of this singular grace bestowed upon them by God, all the Christians, Nestorians, and Jacobites from that time forth have continued to celebrate in a solemn manner the return of the day on which the miracle took place, keeping a fast also on the vigil. Thanks for listening, guys. God bless you.